Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 130. Must buy Simon. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. Hey, Anthony, welcome back to the number one rated Game of Thrones recap podcast. Man, that'd be cool. <laughs> we could just talk about that today. That's fine, right? Although this comes out like Monday morning, so sure. people will be like, you're a week behind. <laughs> a little bit, but we, we know everything that's going on in Westeros, and we're here to bring you up to date, and totally not about board games at all. <laughs> I think we just lost half of our listenership there. I don't know. There's probably some crossover. You think so? Diagram between uh, board gamers and Game of Thrones fans? Yeah, it's probably about 50%, like you said. So <laughs> everybody else is like, done, or they haven't seen it yet, and they're like, spoilers, no. No, not at all. We, we have covered Game of Thrones games, so there is some crossover there. That's true, although I'm not super keen on the current crop of Game of Thrones re-themed games. Ah, yes. We've got Game of Thrones Catan, Game yeah. of Thrones Cosmic Encounter, what's uh. next? Game of Thrones Ticket to Ride with <laughs> carts and buggies. <laughs> you definitely don't want to be on that, that train. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Could be some dragons around. Where does it go? <laughs> North of the wall. <laughs> All right. Well, of course, we are a podcast about everything tabletop and board games. So that's what we're talking about this week. And especially, we're talking about the greatest and latest in board gaming. And in particular, this week, our feature review is about must-buy games when it comes to CMOD. Or what used to be known as Cool Mini or Not. They do a lot of great games, and we want to give you some insight about what games you should buy when you are buying Simon games. Because Anthony and I have bought a few Simon games, right? We're a little committed to that. Maybe all of them. I don't know. <laughs> I was just looking through the list when we were putting this together, and I was like, have that, have that, have that, have that, have that, have that. Which of these would I buy again if you told me I had none again, right? And mm -hmm. so that's, that's what the list is, ideally. Well, I'm thinking about a kind of fallout situation where I need my minis to kind of protect me. So I think I'm pretty well established <laughs> army wise. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just pick one of the mini games with that has at least three expansions. And there you go. You're there set. You go. Not too bad. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later. So but before we get into all of that miniature fun, Anthony, what is everybody talking about on the uh, Facebook page? All right. Well, since we're talking about buying a whole bunch of games uh, that maybe you don't necessarily need, I asked, what do you consider before buying a game for your collection? What would you include in a rubric on a tough decision? So basically asking people what their one thing is or what their, I guess a lot of people give me multiple answers, but what their things are that they look for before they commit to buying it. Um, so James kicked things off here is... He said, one, play time. I'm unlikely to play games that last over two hours, even though I personally don't mind it. And then player count. 50% of my players are two-player and 25% are three. Both very good points. Mark says he tries to buy games that have been out for at least a year and have plenty of reviews on BGG. And so he can look at several YouTube reviews and find a playthrough. 
saves a bunch of money. So I agree with that as well. Elena mentioned solo mode, price, component quality. She's very tired of cheap, poor quality cards. Mm. Mentions in particular games that have decent ones, Isle of Trains and the Great Heartland Hauling Company. Okay. So just calling people out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are good. Those two are good. A whole bunch more here. My, Matt had one of my favorite responses on Facebook. I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but he basically wrote uh, a function in basic if new game equals solo mode then if variability of solo mode is greater than five plays then money else go to family play and it just it goes on from there wow. so that is check out impressive. the facebook page yeah <laughs> i'll try to remember to put it in the show notes because it's pretty funny but yeah i mean i think for me it, there aren't enough criteria but were i to actually think about it more it would definitely come down to am i going to play this sure at all and then what are, what are the player counts? Like two-player games, for example, I stopped buying them at a certain point because they didn't hit the table very often. I thought they would, but they don't. And eventually my kids will get older, and they will, but at the moment they don't. Three-player games never hit the table, so those are sure. tough tough buys. So, you know, four, solo or four and five are the, like my player counts I look for. And then other than that, am I going to play it, and does it have resale value? Because if I later decide I don't like it, can I get rid of it? That's another question I always like to ask. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's always about, can I get the game to the table? Will my gaming group play it multiple times? Will they be interested in it? And if it won't get that replayability more than maybe one shot, how much do I really want to own this game for its collectability? Because if it's not going to get to the table, then I really have to love the game enough to keep it on a shelf almost indefinitely. I'm not going to be looking so much as, as resale value, but I'm going to look as far as this is going to be something I want to own for the future, for maybe getting it played or just having it. All right, so that's everything that's being talked about on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, we have all of our social media accounts. Obviously, our Facebook and Twitter always has Question of the Day going up there. And if you want to get more people into the conversation, share this podcast with other people. You're gaming. You're you're getting into the hobby. Let other people know where you're talking about this and where you're hearing about the newest and greatest games out there. All right, with that said, Anthony, let's talk about some of the newest and greatest games that are coming out. What's on your acquisition disorder this week? Okay, so the one game that caught my eye in the last week or so um, is Isle of Sky Journeyman. This is actually an expansion for Isle of Sky, and it is coming out sometime this year from Mayfair Games, and it adds a whole bunch of new stuff to Isle of Sky, which is one of those games that I didn't really take to at first, but over the course of the year or so it's been out, um, I find myself playing it more and more just because it's a good 30 to 45 minute game. It's more complex and has a little bit more going on than something like, say, Carcassonne, but it has kind of the same feel. So if you like the tiling, it's fun. Journeyman adds a whole bunch of new stuff, it looks like. So you get a new personal player board with things like strength and prosperity and popularity. So it's basically about being in charge, whereas the original game is about becoming the king, right? So now it's about actually managing all the things that you're now the king of. There are different progress steps. There's requirements to meet meet each of those. So you have to take that into account while also taking into account how the player boards are going to affect the tiles that you sell and the placement of those tiles. And then moving up, you need to be able to move around the board. So you have a journeyman token that's going to be moving around and activating different tiles out there. I'm not exactly sure how this is all going to play out, but it sounds like it adds a lot of different mechanisms. It's not just like a cosmetic add-on. Um, there's some new scoring tiles, too, which are important, but there are completely new mechanisms here, plus a more personal aspect of it, so you can more even further customize how you play the game. So for me, that's awesome. 
It doesn't look like it adds much to the game length either. This still says 75 minutes. So if that's the case, and you can still play the game in an hour or so, I'm all about this. Nice. Yeah, I definitely want to see something new for Isle of Sky. It wasn't really a great game for me. So if this expansion adds more to it, maybe it'll actually hit my table. Yeah, definitely. It's just a little... I still like it as a filler, but it's a little too light. This it seems like it'll add a little bit more weight to it. Yeah, and it was a little too random as far as you're building something and everything goes away, and you're like, what? So maybe this kind of corrects that, and yeah, because I really do want to like this game. There's so much to actually like about it. Well, the game that I'm looking forward to that's going to be coming out at Gen Con, actually, is Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time. This is a game by Funforge, and you probably know Funforge for their Tokaido board game. So this game has... Gorgeous. Probably the best looking artwork that I've seen come out for a game at this point, as, as far as Gen Con's concerned. And this is a co-op game in which Professor Evil is Professor Evil is going throughout time and stealing very valuable historical items, and you've tracked him back to his home in order to save these items. So you and your team are going to enter his manor and then go through doors track down these items, flip switches, and take these items back. And then your whole team needs to get these items back before the, to the, before the clock times out. And he's able to, once and for all, keep locked down these items for good. Now, what's interesting about this game is Professor Evil will move on his own by you rolling a die that will indicate where he moves. And not only does he move on the board in order to kind of block your way and send you out of the, the manor, but also there is a center board area where his piece is going to move around. And if his piece comes across one of the items that's marked on the board, that piece gets locked down. So you are racing a clock and you are also racing him to get to all the items. So you're kind of trying to grab them and he's trying to lock them down. It's a beautiful production. The game looks great. And I guess what's probably most interesting about this game is that the co-op element about, you know, when do you open something? When do you close something? When do you flip a switch? When do you kind of enter a certain area? Has that kind of um, escape room mechanic to it. So I'm really looking forward to Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time. And uh, this will be something coming out of Gen Con. Yeah, this one looks so cool. I don't, like at first, I, I, I didn't know anything about it. And I've heard it kind of floating around. But now that I actually know what the game is, it does look pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a great production, good co-op game, and it's obviously on that whole kind of escape room, kind of, you know, steampunk kind of thing. So really, really nice. All right, so that's the acquisition disorders that are looking forward to hitting our table. Now let's talk about the games that are actually hitting our table. So Anthony, what have you gotten to your table this week? Okay, so the game that I've played by far the most in the last probably month is First Martians, Adventures on the Red Planet, the new game from Portal Games, from Ignacy Trevichek. This is the Martian iteration of Robinson Crusoe. It is probably the game I was most anticipating all year. I pre-ordered it directly from Portal Games just to get the tiny bit of extra stuff that came with it. Very, very excited for this game. This review is going to be very, very short because it's a big, long, heavy game. We did a very in-depth review on Every Night is Game Night. So if you want to hear about 45 minutes on this game, you can head on over there and hear much more about it from all the different angles with kind of a solo perspective, but really everything there. But the basic idea of 
First Martians is very similar to Robinson Crusoe. You are in the situation, you have to do various things, you have to explore, you have to build, you have to fix things, you have to keep everything running. Whereas in Robinson Crusoe, you're doing a lot of adventuring and finding new things and building things from the various you know, inventions that you can pull from, from the, the board. First Martians is about keeping things running. All of those machines are already out there. Most of the time they already work in most of the scenarios and you're trying to keep them from breaking. So there's a lot of different mechanics that will break them. You're trying to keep them from breaking while you complete your objective. The game takes place over six different phases and then usually there's between five and seven rounds in a given scenario. Um, there's going to be events that come up in the app that you can that you'll have to process, including malfunctions and all sorts of other stuff, adventures that happen. There's a morale track, very similar to Robinson Crusoe. There's production. When you do production, you're going to make sure you have enough oxygen and energy for all of your things. If you do not, things start breaking and shutting down. You'll also be producing food and moving seeds along in the greenhouses. That's another place where things can break. The stress levels goes up. That's another place where things can break. You get the idea. Lots and lots of things that can break. Um, the core of the game is the actions. The actions are very much like Robinson Crusoe. Everybody has two pawns. You place one pawn on most of the working spaces will give you a chance to succeed. You have to roll dice, and those dice will either have success or failure. If you fail, you get extra morale tokens that you can use to kind of boost things up later. And then there's adventures on there as well, plus wounds you can take if you really fail. There are, and if you place two of your little icon dudes, your markers out, it's an automatic success. Unless you're exploring or gathering, in which case the further away you get from the hub, the more pawns you need to succeed. So lots of interesting things, lots of interesting decisions to make. It is, you've heard probably by now, if you know anything about this game, you've heard that the rule book is a mess. Uh, it is. It is a mess. So the main problem with the rule book, and we talk about this in much more depth, but the main problem is that it doesn't show you everything in the order in which you need to know it. All the information is there in the book for the most part, but some of it's in the sidebar, some of it's in the examples. Sometimes they tell you what things don't do instead of telling you what they do do. And then there's a lot of very scenario specific rules that will show up in the app or in the scenarios, and those aren't necessarily covered either. Really, the best way to learn this game right now is to watch the Watch It Played video. It does a very, very good job of going through the game. So definitely recommend doing that if you're going to learn this game in any form and then go from there to the scenarios in the app. But if you ignore how hard it is to learn and you ignore some of the fiddliness because the app doesn't take care of everything in the game like it should, I really enjoy the game. It is a more technical, more thinky, more puzzly approach to the Robinson Crusoe formula. If you like the sci-fi, if you like kind of the hard science of it, uh, this is much more engaging on that side of things. Whereas Robinson Crusoe is more of an adventure story with lots of big action pieces and lots of things that can happen in those cards. This one has stuff that breaks that you have to fix. You're alone, you're in space, you're isolated. There's no jaguar out on the Martian surface that's going to attack you. There's just you know, dust storms and lost food and broken oxygenators, you know, but that stuff's cool to me and I really enjoy it. So it is a very good game. It's decently heavy. It's not quite as hard as Robinson Crusoe, but it has a lot more content in it. There are six scenarios and two campaigns to play through and you can up the difficulty because the app has easy, medium and hard modes on it. So for people who've played Robinson before, do you need this game? I don't necessarily know that you do unless you really like the theme. I'd say it's a good play for you. If you don't have either game, but you like the idea of the games, 
it's really, really close to a buy. I can't quite give it a buy just because of the situation where the rules are at right now. But even with that said, if it's the type of game where you, uh, if, if you like co-ops and you like this adventure style and you like the sci-fi and you like space, um, it's definitely going to be a game you'll enjoy and just ignore the rule book and use the watch it play video. <laughs> It'll be much easier on you. For me, I'm very happy I picked it up though. So good game, bad rule set, and the app doesn't kind of reach the kind of expectations we all had for it. Yeah, I mean, the app works fine. It's just it's a funny app. It's not particularly pretty. It doesn't have a lot of flavor text. There's no music in the background. There's no like ambiance to it. It doesn't add much to the theme. And then there are still three decks of cards out and there are a lot of bits on the board, things that probably could have been managed by the app. So the app is kind of like a midway point. Okay. It does a good. It shows you how to set up the scenarios, which is nice. So you don't have those extra rules to dig through. It lets you save your game, so you can like tell the app what the game state is, and then come back to it later if you don't have time to finish. It does a lot of really cool things, and so it's necessary to play this in its form, current form. Like the amount of stuff there is, it's necessary. Okay. It's just they could have done more with it. I think. Maybe we'll get an update in the future on the app that would kind of correct some of these things. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's nothing broken with the game at all. It's just one of those, I don't know, it's hard to tell. It's not lack of polish per se. It's just lack of, I guess, understanding of how people would engage with the content. You know, like okay. maybe the people at Portal who played the game don't have these problems, but a lot of us do. <laughs> like You go to the forums and there are a lot of us having these same problems. I own Robinson Crusoe. Do I pick this up? Do I need to pick this up? It's a different game. Okay. In like Robinson Crusoe, again, you're going out and you're building stuff and you're doing things and you're creating this game. You have everything at the start of the scenario and it's falling apart. Okay. Now, some people don't like that. They, they, they're like, I don't want all my stuff to break. That's not as fun as building things. <laughs> sure. But it's, it's more along the lines of like a pandemic approach where at the beginning of pandemic, everything's more or less fine. And then it starts to deteriorate as the disease spreads. This is more like that. Everything's fine, more or less to start and you're all surviving. But if you don't stay on top of things that will not last very long so it's fun i like it it's just a little bit harder to get into than i was expecting sounds good all right so i want to talk about two games that were produced by cubicle 7 now you probably don't know too much about this company unless you're an rpg gamer they're very very famous for having rpgs for lord of the rings and doctor who so I'm going to talk about two of their Doctor Who board games. So the first game I want to talk about is a game that came out a couple of years ago, way back in 2013. This is Doctor Who The Card Game. Now, right off the bat, what interested me about this game was it, the designer was Martin Wallace. So I was like, wow, pretty heavy kind of dynamic designer for a kind of thematic type of game. Now, this game is a family thematic game. It's on the lighter side. It's probably around, I would say, maybe a two out of the five. Now, what you're going to be doing in this game is you are going to be playing locations. And these are all famous locations from all of, I guess, the Doctor Who universe. So everything from the last several d different Doctors, I guess the last four Doctors, are going to be in this game. So you have locations that you're going to have in your hand to play. And this game uses a card drafting mechanic where you're going to pass around locations, you're going to pass around support, you're going to pass around those famous enemies, companions, and then, of course, the last four doctors. So the purpose of the game is going to be, once you have these locations on the board, you are going to try to defend your locations 
using the doctors and companions and support. And then you're going to try to use the enemy of the doctor to attack the other locations on your opponent's boards. So you are going to take your cards. And once again, these are all photos. I would say some are from the show and some of these are kind of like studio photos. So really nice photos here. You are going to play face down the cards. And now each of these cards has a numerical value. Your opponent, seeing the attack on their cards, will place down their defenders using the Doctors and Companions. And then at some point, that will trigger you to flip over both sides of the cards. If you win as an attacker, you put a Dalek token on there. And if you use all your Dalek tokens are out on the board for conquering those different areas, you win. As a defender, you are trying to get the higher number. And if you get all of your TARDISes out there, to defend you in. So throughout the game, you're gonna be attacking and defending at the same time. And whether it's the attacking Daleks or the defending Tardises that wins, that's pretty much what you're looking to do as far as winning the game. So Doctor Who, the card game, not very complex, but an interesting kind of tactical gameplay as far as trying to outwit your opponent because you saw those cards that were being drafted. What were they able to bank? What are they playing to defend? What are they playing to attack? And generally on the lighter side, I would say this game is worth a, a play because if you're not a Doctor Who fan and you don't need to be a Doctor Who fan to play this game because the theme is really just kind of in the artwork, it's not really in the gameplay, it's still going to engage you enough to want to at least get this game to the table. Now, the second game that I want to talk about is Doctor Who Time Clash. Now, this is the starter set that came out in 2016 and they've already announced the next two expansions that are going to be coming out in 2017 and 2018. So this current starter set is, I guess, Peter Capaldi, the, the current Doctor, but the upcoming expansions is going to have the last two Doctors, Matt Smith and David Tennant. So in this game, it's going to be different than the card game here. What you're doing in this game is you're either going to play the Doctor or you're going to play the enemy. Now, this game says it plays up to four players, but I highly, highly, highly recommend not playing with more than two. When you play with three or four players, it really waters out the gameplay, as I'm going to tell you here. So the game board is three pieces of a circle that you're going to put together. Now, these three pieces of the board are going to have special abilities that are going to activate when the little TARDIS token is on that area. Now, once again, just like the card game, great artwork, pictures from the show, photos, really nice job. The gameplay is definitely on the lighter side because what you're going to do as the enemy of the Doctor here is you are going to try to play cards that are worth up to negative 1,000 on the enemy section. If you're able to do that, you're in a position to win the game because once you have a negative 1,000 in that section, you calculate the whole board. Now, if all of those three sections add up to less than zero, you win the game. As the doctor, what you're trying to do is you're trying to hit 800, a positive 800 in one of the sections. Now, if you do that, then you flip this middle disc, this vortex disc, into the air, and if it falls towards the end of the game side of that little disc, then that marks the end of the game. Now, what happens then is you are going to roll a die, and based upon that die roll and the number of positive points, if you're able to get to that right score, 
if you're able to hit the, the right score, you win the game. So basically, you're taking a card, you're playing a card, you're trying to kind of smash up your area to, to get to the, the right number, and you're trying to keep your enemy from getting to their end game conclusion. Once again, this is a light game. This is a family game. This is for Doctor Who fans. The theme really here isn't too heavy. It's nice to see the game pieces. It's, it's a very different look for a game. So if you did put this down on the table, any Doctor Who fan would recognize this game. It's worth a play only as a two-player game. I highly don't recommend this as a three- and four-player game because it's just simply one deck of cards, and it's really two sides to a conflict here. Beyond that, these games aren't heavy. They're nice to have in the board gaming universe. These are these games are leaning on the big box kind of production side. They're not heavy, heavy games as far as what we're looking for. And they're not heavy thematic games. If you're a big fan of Doctor Who, you probably want to look at Cubicle 7's RPGs because these games are kind of a nice little filler, but really nothing beyond that. And I'm hoping that with the deep and rich vein of Doctor Who out there, that one day we'll actually see a really solid, interesting, thematic, complex game that, you know, that Doctor Who universe really deserves. I know nothing about Doctor Who, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. That's what I have to, ask, to okay. add to that. So bring, I, on the, bring on the flames, people. It's fine. I've heard them before. I'm a Doctor Who fan, and, and a, but not a hardcore Doctor Who fan. So these, these games kind of worked for me. But even as a casual fan, I really felt like I wanted more. So uh, hopefully Cubicle 7 picks up on this and they produce a, a great game. But uh, uh, it's nice to have Martin Wallace get involved. All right, so that's everything for our At The Table. Now on to our feature review. Why should you own a game? Is it going to get to the table? Is it worth your time? And especially, is it worth your money to be part of your collection? Not to mention the shelf space. We put together a list of the five must-buy Simon games. So cool mini or not games, you probably heard about them. You probably kickstarted many of them. These are what we feel are the five top games with one honorable mention. I own... Every, well, all but one of the games we're going to talk about today and about half a dozen more beyond that. So, okay. yeah, let's just say they've they've uh, they've hit me for a little bit, a little bit. Right. So one of the great things about CMON is, as Anthony was saying, is they do outstanding miniatures and outstanding Kickstarter campaigns. And man, when they when they produce a game, it is seriously, seriously overproduced in the best way possible. So these are the five games with the one honorable mention. So first off, our honorable mention, a game that's out of print, but it's a game that we got to the table quite a lot back in the day when we were board gaming at Myriad Games, and that's Hal Wallon. This is a grid-based game where you have these tiles placed out there, and you have your own little faction, and you are trying to gain influence in those sections in order to claim those cards that contain special abilities. And interact with each other it's a quick plane i wouldn't say it's a filler because it does have some depth to it but the production is solid it's a really interesting dynamic game and uh it's something i hope gets back out to the table more and more and uh maybe hopefully simon brings it back out in another form yeah that'd be great i mean i have the small box version and then there's a big box version there's several different versions of this but yeah it has you don't really see it much around because it's been out of print for a while Definitely. All right. So these are our top five Simon games. Now, 
Anthony and I are going to talk about why these games made the list. We try to bring you a diversity, but try to also bring you the best CMON games. All right, so for our number five, Potion Explosion. Now, this was a game that we saw last year at Origins, and it's quickly become one of the kind of fastest, I would say, gateway family games, kind of using that, you know, candy crunch mechanic where you have this really interesting little cardboard setup where you have these all these marbles and based upon what marble you take out they're going to smash together and explode and you're going to get more marbles you're going to place them on these potion bottles that are going to be able to allow you to do a special ability that's going to chain into other special abilities and then allow you to complete a lot of these potions so it's a fun colorful interesting game and i've got it into the table several times with family how about you anthony yeah yeah i mean same here it's been uh, it's one of those games that when I picked it up, it felt silly because I'm like, <laughs> it's marbles. And we had played it before that. We played it at Origins last year. Yep. But it's gotten a lot of play. I mean, the I've even been able to bring it out a couple times at game nights and with the family. My son loves it. If I can get him to keep the marbles on the table, we're all good. <laughs> uh, and then there's an expansion coming out, too. I think they're yes. going to have it at Gen Con. So I'm going to track that down as well because it's going to add, what is it, a wild marble? Yeah. That'll be cool. Some uh, ghost ectoplasm kind of marbles. So yeah, it's a it's a fun, interesting game. And if you're looking to get something that gets non-gamers or video gamers into the board gaming, this is a really good choice. And our number four pick is Lorenzo El Magnifico. So this is a strange but wonderful entry into Simon's library. This is actually a Euro game. What? <laughs> Anthony, you, you played this probably more than I have. What do you think about the game? Okay, so this game came out at Essen last year, I think from Cranio Creations. And it's I, I was very surprised when CMOM was the company that picked it up. And there's a couple other Euros that they have coming out in the future, too. So this is not the only one. Sure. But it is a decently heavy Euro in which you are building a tableau of different uh, commerce buildings and territories that produce wood and stone and then using those resources to buy other cards recruiting different people and completing different deeds that are worth points there's a lot of different things going on here and it's a decently heavy game it is there's no miniatures there are dice but they're not rolled for chance they're just rolled for action selection it is a good hearty traditional heavy thinky euro and it's it's really good i've had a lot of fun with it so far this year i mean when I went to pick it up, actually, the local game store owner told me it was it was too tight. It was too brutal, which turned out not really to be the case. But I see where he's coming from. It is one of those harsher, meaner euros where you can really get boxed out of things, especially with four players. But I've really enjoyed it. And I'm very much looking forward to the expansion for this. Also just recently announced um, coming out at Essence. So hopefully Simon picks that up. Yep. Yeah, this was a game that I was really looking forward to because I did really enjoy Grand Austria Hotel. But one of the challenges with that game was because of the card draw, it was so variable. Like towards the end of the game, you really wanted to get those end game bonus cards. But sometimes you ended up with like kind of a really lame production card. Or early in the game, you were getting these end game bonus cards. But really at that point in the game, you need these production cards. So it almost had a similarity to like Agricola and Caverna. Now Lorenzo here you actually had all of those cards out there on the board so you could actually choose what you wanted to build towards. And the, as the game went on, the cards kind of got better and better. So it had a really ni natural, nice progression to it. And I really do enjoy this game a great deal. 
and I and I think this game should be part of really anyone's collection if you're into Euro games. All right. So the next on our list, our number three, is Rivet Wars Eastern Front. Now, this is one of the games that was an honorable mention in our top 10 battle games. Now, this is a two-player game that utilizes, I would say, kind of an alternate universe, World War II slash chibi, cutesy little miniatures that are kind of battling it out in kind of a steampunk way. Now, the artwork on this game, the miniatures on this game, makes it very pleasing to anyone who comes to the table and brings new players into the industry. And yet at the same time, it offers a complexity in gameplay that you typically only see in those kind of heavier military games. So you, your units, whether they're infantry or even the airplanes and zeppelins, are going to be able to attack and be attacked differently depending on their stats. So a unit may not be able to attack a heavy unit. So it really brings that solid military wargaming into a pretty reasonable, I wouldn't say gateway, but entry-level way for those military tactic games. All right, so now our number two is Arcadia Quest. Now, Arcadia Quest, just like Rivet Wars, is kind of taking the whole dungeon crawl, dungeon delve in a new direction, using the same complexity in some cases as those wonderful mechanics, but yet at the same time, making it cutesy enough using those chibi miniatures and a long kind of, and a campaign mechanic that allows you to play individual games, save it, or play throughout and gain new abilities and gain new weapons throughout. It's had multiple, multiple expansions that I think Anthony and I own pretty much all of them. So if you were looking for something to get players into that type of situation, Arcadia Quest is great for that. Yeah, Arcadia Quest is fantastic. And as the miniatures guy, I love how many miniatures I have now. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of miniatures. More miniatures than I will ever possibly use to play this game. I could play this game for weeks, every night for like six weeks, and I would not even use all the heroes which is ridiculous, but also awesome. Yeah, with all the number of heroes out there and how they interact together on your three-person team or three-person and pets team, which is one of the new expansions, as Anthony says, you can play this game forever and not play the same game twice. All right, so for our number one, must-buy Simon games. It's got to be, of course it is, Blood Rage. Blood Rage! <laughs> the Eric Lang game that took I think board gaming by storm for quite, quite a long time. And once again, it utilizes those dudes on a map fighting each other out, classic board game, area control, and kind of brings it to the next level. Once again, outstanding artwork, outstanding theming, amazing miniatures. And yet, it crosses over from that Ameritrash kind of gameplay and kind of, I would say, more than dips its toes into kind of Euro gaming because you're going to have card drafting early on. You're going to have card play instead of rolling dice. And there's a lot of different ways to gain victory depending on the different strategies that you might take based on the cards. It's had multiple Kickstarter expansions in this game. And yet at the same time, it plays so well just in the base game alone. And it's something that it gets to the table often just yeah, you you guys knew Blood Rage had to be up here. You knew it. 
Maybe some of you were holding out to be Zombicide. I'm sorry. It's not Zombicide. It is Blood Rage. <laughs> yeah, this game is fantastic. I, I wish I got to the table more now, and it's just that cult of the old, cult of the new thing. Sure. It's, it's somehow... Two years now is apparently how long it takes to slide into the cult of the old, because that's where <laughs> that's where it is. But give it another year or so, it'll be back out there everywhere. It'll be back on the, the top of the list. Yeah, this is a fantastic game. And anytime people, if someone brings it, I will jump to the table to make sure I'm playing it. Always had a good time with this one. Yeah, Seamont has an outstanding catalog of games, and they're only getting better. We re- highly recommend, once again, uh, Potion Explosion. Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Rivet Wars, Eastern Front, Arcadia Quest, and our number one choice, Blood Rage. These are great games that constantly get to the table, worthy of collecting, worthy of your money, and really worthy of our great board gaming industry. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the TARDIS. Nice. There you go.